0: It was the early 90s and a South African serial killer was on the loose. On a rampage of rape and murder, he sent a Johannesburg suburb of women running for cover in blood-curdling terror. In a deadly game of cat and mouse, investigative journalist Janine Lazarus was used by the police as a decoy to trap the Norwood serial killer. If we're to believe that journalists should shape the news, not make it, Lazarus broke just about every rule in newsroom ethics as she became increasingly obsessed with Goebbas Galdanaes. In True Crime Memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer, she gives a personal account of the fascinating pre-digital era of the 1990s newsroom ethics and questionable police procedures. To Catch a Serial Killer is the official companion podcast series, a jackpot production featuring Janine Lazarus, Jacaranda FM News Editor, Marius van der Walt, as well as various guest contributors.
1: The human fascination with serial killers and the reasons why they do what they do stretches back decades. Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Bundy, our very own subject on which this series is largely based the norwood serial killer guibas galbenaes in this episode myself and author janine lazarus who made her name as one of south africa's finest investigative journalists back in the 1990s speak with one of the political reporters at the time deputy editor of the citizen and janine's mentor as a young hack brendan Siri. brendan i do want to start with you now right it's late 1992 It's fair to say that there were a few things going on in the country at the time. And then we're also having to deal with the serial killer in the northern suburbs of Joburg. Just set the scene for me as a journalist and somebody in the media at that time.
2: I think there were a couple of things to notice because I was working with the Sunday Star newspaper. I was working for a Durban paper though, called the Sunday Tribune. So both of those papers were interested in... In human interest stories, but the political story which was happening around and about was just so amazing. So, we'd had Mandela released in February 1990, and we had the Codesa talks going on the way at Kempton Park. And at the same time, there was basically what turned into a mini civil war starting to erupt on the East Rand. There was one going on down in KwaZulu Natal, and there was a right wing kind of campaign to have their own folk start and to fight against what they saw as a a surrender to communism. And so all of these things were percolating around. I think at the same time, people were trying to come to terms with what the changes in South Africa. Now what a lot of people have forgotten about, particularly now is that 1992 was also the year that white South Africans went to the, the polls and they said, yes, 67, 70%, I think something like that. They said yes to, to black majority rule. So it was effectively going to be the first time that a ruling elite handed over power peacefully. So all of those things were happening. And I think there was a. The atmosphere basically was like Joburg has always been a mining town. So it's always been very violent. It's always been very passionate. But I think there was a sense of almost end of days there. No one knew what was going to happen. Were we going to end up in a civil war? And I think right up until almost 1994, till that election, and even till um, Mandela was sworn in, no one knew which way it would really go. So there was, there was madness in the air at the time amongst everybody. And I think there was a, a, a sense that, yes, it's historical, but what happens if it's a disaster? That was the atmosphere.
1: So then obviously a serial killer is not exactly going to be on page one consecutive days, or even one day?
2: Well, I think there is, there is another thing. I think people partly are horrified by it, because a serial killer at that stage, don't forget this was earlier, he was one of the first in South Africa. There may have been others, but I think he was the first one that was identified and chased and court. But horror always fascinates people, fascinates newspaper readers. And I think this idea of, of killing, and I don't know what was in his mind, but... Possibly there was the sense that the old rules don't count anymore because, you know, whatever I grew up with doesn't count, so I'll do it. But um, it definitely was something that would have stayed on the front page. And and I think possibly in a way because there was so much politics happening. Every day there was something at Cadessa. So Mandela would attack De Klerk, De Klerk would attack Mandela, and everybody would make threats. And there was a lot of grandstanding going on. So in a way... The serial killer story was one that kind of riveted people because it was different, but also it was because it was so horrifying.
3: If I can ask you a question, Brendan, I mean, I was a crime reporter at the time, a died-in-the-wall crime reporter. I always felt, and I think, I think it still exists today, that crime reporters in the day were always the, the bottom end of the food chain. Guys like you were covering important stories, a country in transition. I was always the pop. Remember that I stood on Oxford Road dre- uh, dressed up like a prostitute when, uh, and I did very well, by the way. 26 cars stopped in 45 minutes. That's that's a car every two minutes. So don't well, knock it. That's
1: well knock done. Off. That's quite impressive.
3: Exactly. So I could have always <laughs> twilighted as one. But that was always, I mean. The political elite journalists like yourselves, didn't you look down at a hack like me?
2: Well, I think, first of all, let's just make sh- I was not um, one of those political reporters. So I covered everything. And in fact, here's an interesting story about the first time I'd only just met Janine. And there was a story. I'd come from Argus Africa News Service in Namibia. And there was a, a right-wing Namibian connection with some of these guys that had in- been involved in some nonsense there. And they were hiding out in a house in Rosettenville. So when she went to go and cover the story, I went with her. And trust me, I'd covered Zimbabwean independence. I'd covered the Gokuruhundi genocide in Zimbabwe. I'd covered Namibia's transition to independence, the war in Angola. And when I went out with Janine, I learned one thing, how to get your foot in a door. And she was, like, and when they talk about terrier like, it's true. I mean, she... I would have, I would have knocked on the door and you know, I want to talk to you. She carried on and on. Eventually, they didn't talk to us. But I, I took one look at that and I thought, you know, after all my experience, and I'd been in the business probably twelve years already by then. I went, I've still got a lot to learn when it comes to hardcore on the ground news. And so I, I would never, I would never look down my nose at Janine. And in fact, what was happening at the time, there was a bit of that. So. They were the so-called political experts who would analyze everything. And for the English-language newspapers, despite the image of them being anti-apartheid, a lot of them were very sympathetic to the government. And, you know, for example, when when the black reporters on the Sunday Star would write something like Safar it if it involved the ANC, his copy would be checked through the white political editor, David Breyer, every single time. And I tried to stay out of that um, because I was working for a Durban paper. We had our own political uh, editor. So the politics I covered were the politics of the right wing and the politics of the left wing. So it was a great contrast. But I actually rather enjoyed working with Janine because those are the kind of stories which really are what a, a Sunday newspaper thrives on, is crime, human interests and drama and it's got to be well done and accurate and so I didn't but I know certainly there would have been people who got yeah and look it didn't do you any favors posing on Oxford Street but I mean it was <laughs> there, there we go but to me that also was a, a lesson about how you involve yourself in the story and there's no better way to report a story than from the inside.
3: Brendan just a question from me you speak about the white liberal press still pushing the agenda I mean, they are white liberal on the outside, but they're really not. As a crime reporter, black victims were part of a homogenous mass. In the instance of the Nord serial killer, his first victim was a domestic worker. I really battled to get her photograph. I battled to find any details on her. I think eventually the police, very grudgingly, gave me a photograph that had been torn out of her passport. In those days, his white victims, of course, I uh, had the whole backstory on them. I mean, that was really what was going on. Am I right?
2: Definitely. I think the world didn't change suddenly in 1990. There was a lot of the racism was there. It was just also the way people, the way things were done. And I think newspapers kind of perpetuated, even the liberal press, and they made such a big deal of of standing up against apartheid. Like, for example, the company we worked for, what was then Argus Newspapers. Guarantee you never saw anything bad about Anglo-American or De Beers. You never did, okay, because they were the major shareholder. That was the reality, and I, you know, I've seen that movie. I've been through it, so I've got personal experience of it. But you know, it's that, and, and it's my theory, and it, it annoys a lot of people. And I, I say because I, you know, I, I'm not a South African. I was born in Zimbabwe, so I can say this as an outsider looking in. I think that a lot of the English opposition to apartheid was not because anyone felt there was any moral duty they had to African people, but because they didn't like Afrikaners more.
1: I'm glad you touched on this, Jim, because it, it kind of fascinates me as well, the, the whole the question of reporting on black bodies, because the, that is a debate that we're still having in newsrooms. It's a, it's a debate that we had around Marikana in, in 2012. It's a debate that we have every day. And then just what were the type of debates that were happening in the newsroom at
2: the time? I tell you, sadly, I think there probably weren't that many. I mean, we accepted the status quo. You know, it, it's a really kind of addictive job being a, a hard news reporter, even if you are working for a publication which only comes out once a week. I don't think we stopped to think or to have a debate because the story was evolving so so quickly, and you're on to the next thing. There were occasional things where our news editor at the time was a died-in-the-wall member of the Communist Party, and I went to go and interview try an interview a PAC. Person returning from exile, and I was told, what the hell do you want to do that for? He's rubbish. And I did it anyway because he wasn't my boss. And it was because of his ANC connection that twisted his own view of the world. But other than that, I I really think we were just um, too busy, kind of amazed at how things were developing. I was doing a bit of investigative work into arms smuggling at the time, and things moved so quickly. I mean, I was dealing with the, the DEA... ATF and the FBI in the States. So I'd have to work late because we didn't have computers and we had faxes. So there would be a six or nine hour difference. I'd have to wait to get the faxes from them and ask them questions. And I was dealing with anti-apartheid people in Europe as well. So things just evolved. You didn't have time to think about or have a debate. To be honest, it it was quite exciting just involved in it, just the life at the time.
3: I have fond memories of not going home, not going to sleep, because we were trying to outscoop the opposition, of falling asleep at my desk and living off cold sandwiches from from the canteen. Is there still that kind of dogged determination, that burning desire to outscoop the opposition?
2: I think there is, but there's an interesting thing about newspapers, and it was particularly the case on the newspapers at South Street Star. They've changed a lot under their new ownership, of course. But back in the day, despite the fact that people changed and the staff changed, there's something in the DNA of those newspapers. There's something in the DNA also of our newspaper, The Citizen. There's a crisis. People are there. They come into the office. It's all hands on deck. And there's no clock watching or or time card punching. But particularly this thing about when there's a good newsroom, the hole is way bigger than the sum of its parts. And it also it, it develops as a kind of a, uh, almost an energy on its own. It's weird to explain. And, and even though the last crisis you had these 10 people, there's another 10 people completely differently. The response is exactly the same, like there's some kind of weird spirit moving in there.
3: What's it like for you? I mean, you come from my day from even before me, because you were much more experienced than I was. I always looked up to you. You used to write my intros. I could never kick off a story. I always had the story, but I could never kick off an intro. And you would sit behind the news desk or wherever you were, and I'd ask you to write it. Do you remember that?
2: I do. Peter Wellman, the news editor, used to ask me to do that quite often because he'd go, I can't face Jan now. So (laughs) this is what he called her, which was her, her computer logon. And I would do it. And the reason was, is that it was all there. All it needed to do was to be rearranged. There's nothing worse, and it's happened to me many times running a desk, than expecting a story. And it comes in with more holes than an Emmentaler cheese. Then you go, hang on. But Janine's stuff was all there. In fact, it was more than all there. So what I would often do um, particularly the one story you remember was the, the shootings at the, at the pub in downtown Joburg. Yes. And she couldn't write the story because she'd been speaking to these guys. So what happened was I think some robbers walked in there, yeah. shot three or four people, killed them, robbed them, and then walked out. She couldn't write it because she was so emotional. She was crying. So I said, okay, sit down, tell me about it. And then we wrote about the tragedy at the pub where everybody knows your name, which was like a take Cheers, on Cheers. Yes. Yeah. But it was actually, all it was, was putting her words into, the, into a, uh, a better format. If you don't have the raw material, there's nothing you can do, and that's, you never had that problem with Janine. So I was happy to help, because it was quite, it was interesting stuff too.
3: Did I cry a lot, Brendan, and do reporters cry these days?
2: No, no but you swore a lot. <laughs> and I'm presuming you still do, but... <laughs> Just to be fair, I
1: think that report is still, and I think it's easy to say that that time, and I mean, obviously it was a a hectic time of transition. But I think, even now, to defend the current generation of journalists, we see a lot as well. It might be different things, but there's a lot going on on right now as well.
2: I think so. I think you know, it also depends on, you know, one of the things that. I think journalists of that foot-in-the-door type pride themselves on is having a thick skin. And I think Janine did have a thick skin when it came to being polite to people, particularly people who didn't deserve politeness. So Janine would just chuck everything out and go for it. Like uh, Peter Thornycroft used to say, like a rat up a drain, she'd go after a story. But the reality is that there is a lot of pressure on people, and even this thick exterior occasionally, but that was one story. I didn't see so much the crime that was the one occasion but the most that you really saw with janine was that once she'd got a story she was like the duracell bunny wanting to tell everyone about it <laughs> and it was it was that scene and that that's what it is it's about journalism if you you know as a news editor it's it's like throwing up the balls in the air and hopefully they'll come down again and hopefully you'll catch them in terms of the stories at work and the ones that don't but the ones that janine nailed you could see it. I mean, she was just on such a high the whole time. And that's what you want from a reporter. You want someone with enthusiasm. Nothing worse than someone who doesn't have enthusiasm and who doesn't go, you know, I I once sent a reporter on a trip to Peru. And one of the things they had to do was get up at 4 in the morning so that they could go and see the sunrise over Machu Picchu. And she didn't because she was too tired. I mean, how does this, it's just bizarre. So the one thing you've got to have as a reporter is that enthusiasm. And then when you're enthusiastic, your editors and people around you, they feed on it and they, and they love working with it. I still love doing it. And I've, I've got those kind of people today as well. Janine,
1: I just want to ask you, do you think it covering uh, stuff like the Norwood Seal Killer back in the day, and if you had to cover it now, do you think it e- would have been easier now or harder now? I mean, considering we have social media now, we have citizen journalism, whatever that means. Do you think
3: it was easier then? Well, I think Brendan would be in a better position to be able to comment on that in terms of newspaper coverage. But I, I you know what I miss, Brendan, in reporting today is I miss that, the kind of human element in a lot of the stories. And, and I'm not talking about the citizen per se, but I'm, I'm talking about that kind of getting up off your bum and going out and getting a story. I mean, I think that while, you know, the internet is great... We never had that. We would go out on stories with pages pretty much linked to our umbilical cords. There was no cell phones, you know. You couldn't record an interview. You'd write in shorthand. And I remember the late Tertius Mayberg walking into the Sunday Times and absolutely coming down like a ton of bricks on our heads because we were still sitting behind our desks on, on a Tuesday after the editorial meeting. It was kind of get up and find a story.
2: Yeah, look, I think the, the problem is now that the newsrooms are much smaller than they were. They're a lot um juniorized. Now I'm not I mean not meaning that in a negative sense, but people don't have the experience and, and you find very few newsrooms with people of my kind of experience and that it's not so much the experience is that what you grow is you grow a nose for when you're being scammed and you need to be a cynic. So I'm a cynic, that's what I am, and I can I can smell a dodgy story from miles off. But I think the the reality is that the newsrooms are under a lot more pressure. So they have fewer staff, and they're under pressure to turn over stories. Particularly online, we don't, but we should do. We don't have really the luxury of being allowing someone to go, as when I was doing the arms smuggling thing, I was taken off the diary. I remember for two weeks, and I could have gone and had a great time and done nothing for two weeks, but I felt obliged, so I did. I brought back a, a lot of good material, but. We don't really have that luxury. We've got pages to fill. We have very few people to fill them with. And then, you know, you have an online operation that works in tandem with the newspaper. Does a, a slightly different, in our case, slightly different view of of the news than we do. But they've also it's a it's like being hamsters on a treadmill. And I think that's the the big problem. We don't have the time. But I think you you're absolutely right. What we should do is take the time to say to people, go out and do that human story. We also tend to think that people don't have an attention span and they can't read stories that are too long. I proved that wrong about 10 years ago on the Saturday Star. I ran a story which was 4,800 words long. It was two full broadsheet pages. And we have never got as many letters on any subject as as that particular one. So I think it's a, it's a case of the pressures of the business. Sadly, a lot of the people involved in the business side don't really get journalism. Journalism is not something that you can quantify by a number of stories. So X number of stories means a journalist is a good journalist. In your case, it was, there's a, a desire, a kind of ego-driven, sorry to say, but no, I true. want to see my name on the front yes, page.
3: Front yeah, page. absolutely.
2: And if you get in my way, watch out, because I'll call. you'll have to call an ambulance. Janine was ruthless that way, and that's what drove you. You would put everything into it. So in terms of the story count, probably not nearly as much as people do these days, but the stories were better and, and more done in detail, but... I think the point is a good one. We should be doing spending more time telling the stories of people and getting behind those stories, which we don't do anymore. Can
3: I just ask a question? What is I mean, I, I crossed the line. I say so in my book. I became part of the story. I did that pretty much with most stories that I have covered. I mean, there's supposed to be some kind of, I guess, unspoken rule that you, you, you never should be part of a story.
2: I, look, it depends on the story. I think the, that what you did was incredibly brave because... You could have ended up pushing up the daisies. You could have got yourself in really bad trouble. Day-to-day uh, journalism, and we went through it all in the 90s in the townships, was also pretty dangerous. But you're talking about a different thing. It's a deliberate decision to become involved. And, yeah, I, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule on it. I mean, I think it's a great idea to to become involved in a story. Like One of my favorite interviews was one I did with um, Sam Chabalala who was the first, winner, first black winner of the Comrades Marathon. And Sam was involved in a terrible taxi accident, and they didn't think he would live. I remember. Then they didn't think he would ever walk again. Then they said, okay, at least you're walking. You're never going to run again. And then I heard from, um, he was training with a club called Spectrum in Vanderbilt Park with a guy called Marnie Simon. And I got hold of Marnie, and I heard that he was training. So I went down, took my running kit, and I went running with Sam Chabalala. I couldn't do much of interviewing him but it was it was great it was actually in there and I did this, a very similar thing with a guy who almost died in a in a horrific accident um and then restarted his running and I think that's the kind of thing which gives you a unique insight but you know putting yourself on the street I don't I don't think people would do that anymore I think what what you did would you know, if you did that today, there would be so many complaints to HR and you know, about exploitation, and how dare you. Executives would be very scared of putting people in that sort of position. Janine, sorry, is it, is it possible for you to just give a little bit of
1: context about how you put yourself out there for those obviously who haven't read the book, but without giving it away?
3: Okay, so the late editor I adored, Dave Hazelhurst, Hazy. There were two rapes that happened in my suburb and Hazy was absolutely furious. I was a crime reporter, I missed them. So I was dispatched tail between my legs to go and pick up the pieces. As a crime reporter, I was pretty close to the cops, much to the political reporter's horror. I don't know if they thought I was sleeping with the police, but I certainly wasn't. Uh, You know, being a crime reporter, you know, one had to get up close and personal with the police. I then found out that there was, they, they suspected the same man was attacking women in my neighborhood. The rapes then morphed into murder, and the boys from Brixton Murder and Robbery Squad, yes, that notorious Murder and Robbery Squad, decided to camp out in my flat. The women who were being raped and murdered lived within a two-and-a-half-kilometer radius of my flat. So the police camped in my flat, frightening my cats, who perpetually lived under the bed. They drank all my wine and all my beer. And one dark night, they made me walk down Iris Road past the barracks, which is because at that particular point, I'd been told that he was probably a cop. So I was that close to the story. And they would come in and out my my flat at all times of the night and mess with what little piece I had.
1: And Brendan, you're right. HR and health and safety, it's just not possible in 2021 to do stuff like that.
2: I don't think it would be. Look, I also... um you know, with the benefit of of hindsight and experience. Thankfully, I got away with a lot of it, but would I do it again? No, I don't think I'd go into cause cause again without a bulletproof vest. But, you know, it's, you also then think, is it right to put someone into that kind of danger? And I think as well, the funny thing is, I know that that serial killer, um, I mean, you were in danger, but sometimes in current day South Africa, you never know. Where the evil's going to come from—it's out there, and it's dangerous for for ordinary people. Never mind reporters. So, we always—I always think twice about people. And and if they have a if they have an issue, um, I would rather say, no story is really worth it. That one was, and 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 I think because, yeah, you got right into that story. But would would we do it today? I don't think we would. I think it would be be quite difficult to do. I think the cops have changed a lot. They're a lot more um, – they avoid issues. They're a lot more difficult to deal with, and they're a lot more obstructionist than they used to be. So it would be difficult from that point of view, I think, to cover a case like
3: this. I've got a question for you. I mean, I climbed up trees and would wait <laughs> – Uh, with a photographer for an individual to leave his house and then I would leap from the tree in fact uh, an individual who was a runner and ask that particular individual questions because he was ducking and diving uh, an interview do reporters still do that
2: look occasionally but I think the problem is you don't know that you go and ambush somebody like that they'll get angry you do it today they'll shoot you I mean you just you never know so I don't know. It, it, it doesn't often uh, often arise, but I think it comes down again to that problem of do you have the staff? You don't. So if there's something happening there and then something else blows up, you've got to pull people off a job. So it's a balancing act, but also it's, you have to understand that it, it's a lot more dangerous, I think, because you, you, you're not quite as sure as you might have been before.
3: Are newsrooms still as as exciting as they were? You know, you are deputy editor of The Citizen. Is there still that kind of passion, that energy, that that complete, it's an addiction?
2: Yeah, I think there is. I think people um, do still pursue it. I think there's nothing quite like seeing your story in a newspaper, on paper, simply because the online thing turns over so quickly that it's there, half an hour later, it's gone. So your, your 15 minutes of fame might be 20 minutes online, but at least with a newspaper, it's there, it's solid. But I think that there's still definitely a, a sense of being a journalist is pursuing a story. And when you pursue the story and you get it, particularly if it's an investigative or as a crime report, when you're doing some digging, digging is, it can be very satisfying. I mean, I was, I did a couple of things in my investigative past for instance, Basson, Dr. Votabasson, I was the first person who found his name. And it was attached to court records at the master's office in Pretoria. And that was digging and digging and digging. And that was part of our chemical weapons investigation. And it's it's very satisfying. But, you know, it, in, in the current state, it's about having the luxury of, here's another story. And you've got a, the pages, if you're sitting on a news desk and you've got empty pages looking and you, you think, my reporters are out doing something, but they're not going to be finished today. What am I going to do? You know, we've cut back on wire services, so we can't just pull wire services, copy, and throw it in there. So it's a very difficult balancing act.
1: Things have also changed, I think, in terms of, of technique. A lot of things have changed. I mean, obviously, Facebook, for me, as evil as it is, <laughs> for a reporter, Facebook is a valuable tool because you have people telling their stories on this platform and if you're a journalist you might not sit outside at the cafe on rocky street or whatever happened back in the day but you'll be mining facebook for people who have interesting stories who are done by by some government service or were turned away from a hospital and you need to find and then from there I think that's where the techniques probably Brendan you can agree or disagree with me that's where it merges a little bit more you know so you have different ways of mining the story
2: I think yeah I I think definitely social media has has changed the way we do our jobs because it's an explosion of information all over the place um uh, Facebook Twitter and you can pick up leads from that and the downside of that it then becomes a habit you sit you quote Facebook cool. You know, we used to have this old story of a, of a guy who who would file from in the middle of a war in Africa, and he would say, Dateline in Jemena, Chad, as bullets thudded into the wall behind me, and then take in agencies. In other words, fill the rest of the story with agency copy. I've just put the top line on it. And I think we're getting to a kind of thing like that with online, where it's a Twitter war starts, a twa, and then you've got a story out of that. So I think there's, there's a danger, although... The Facebook thing you talk about is probably a better source than Twitter because there's a lot of rubbish on Twitter. But Facebook is very useful. But then what it should be doing is say, here's a good story. Let's go and get on. Let's find that person, see if they're willing to talk about it. Because often when you spend time with people, a lot of stuff comes out that didn't come out.
1: You mentioned that the size of the newsrooms have changed. So it's a question of how much can you get done by moving around as little as possible, because if you sit at your desk, you can maybe churn out 10 stories. But when you go out, then you're down to maybe one story. The situation is is completely different. Some of it has improved, but I think there's a lot of it that, that hasn't for the pure art of journalism.
3: I just remember the days of filing stories from a corner cafe, from a a ticky box, and flirting with a cafe owner in order to be able to use that at no cost. And then there was a dictate typer sitting on the other end of the phone chewing gum very audibly. And you'd, you'd have to be filing copy from the field from the top of your head, and I couldn't write an intro, remember. And she was chewing gum, and she'd interrupt you and mess up the copy flow. Does that still happen?
2: No, it doesn't, because people just file on their phone. Everything's on my phone.
1: I don't, <laughs> don't need to flirt with anybody.
2: Yeah, if you think about it, it's amazing, because you, be you can be filing video, you can be filing all sorts of stuff. And I think that is definitely one of the improvements. One of my favorite stories is I was... I beat every other agency in the world to file the arrival of Margaret Thatcher in Namibia in 1989 for the the start of the independence process, because... I could run faster than everyone else. So (laughs) she landed at the old terminal. I'd already gone and recce the place. I knew there were three telephones in in the new terminal. So it was about 300 meters. So once I'd made my notes, I had already a couple of 50-cent pieces, hit the phones, I phoned Joburg. They phoned me immediately back and opened the line. And like you said, I just did a, a dictate. And that story was in the star and around our group, 20 minutes before Associated Press or Reuters or UPI filed on it. Wow. But to be able to do what people do now with with phones makes an incredible difference. So what we do nowadays, if you're out on a job and something's happening and, and there are other people there, you file it immediately for online. You don't hold it. So there's no exclusivity. You can then file what you've got for online and then later on have a look and see whether you can take it further, whether you can bring a bit of analysis, a bit of perspective into it. But I really do think the technology has, has made a huge difference. It's made people's work easier. But it's also enabled, I think, a lot more people to be aware of stuff. If you if you look at things like the Arab Spring and those, those and a lot of the protests now are being driven by social media. So the first thing they did in Swaziland was they closed that down in the recent protests. Yeah. They've closed it down in, in Zim on occasion, too. They tried to do it in Zambia over the election, too. It's a standard totalitarian thing because they cannot, absolutely cannot control it. And I think that's the big benefit of this kind of technology is there's so many new voices now. You can't silence them all.
1: No, and you can't. I mean, if you look at Afghanistan is a good example. I think also recently that the access that I've had just sitting here in South Africa to, to what happened at, at Kabul airport is it, just just amazing. So I think to close it down, the, the conversation Better or worse? And I think I would like an answer from each of you in terms of where we are as journalists.
3: From a reporter's perspective, I mean, I haven't worked in the newsrooms of today.
1: But you still read newspapers.
3: As I said to Brendan, I miss the people stories. I miss the connection. I think that there are pockets of brilliant investigative journalism, really outstanding. I think there are some brilliant reporters, but I miss that kind of feel.
2: I think you're right there. I think I also I'll sit on the fence because I I won't say it's better or worse. I'll say it's different. And I think in terms of if you look at South African journalism, and Janine's absolutely right. The journalist units like Scorpio and Amo Bungani have changed changed history, and I think possibly even more so than we did at our time. I mean, when I did my arms expose, it was never run in the Star Sunday Star in Johannesburg because you know the lawyers were too scared of what would really be WMC, white monopoly capital that runs things in Joburg. We ran it in Durban eventually and then it was picked up by agencies all around the world. So that kind of, the kind of investigative work they've been doing is actually having a more of an impact because it's changing the history of the country and things are happening. Zondo Commission, whatever, it's happening because of journalists that wrote about that stuff. So in that sense, South African journalism is definitely alive and well. And it's changing, I think the online system is it, it's different and i think it it can be frustrating it can be very shallow a lot of the stuff can be clickbaity so there's not enough nuance and there's not enough um, perspective put in there which is a pity because people are, are it's it's what i call canary floss journalism so people are consuming it and you end up because of that this tendency that we find now for people to go well i don't like the mainstream media and so everyone has a go at the mainstream media. It's become a cliche, but the mainstream media at least has has checks and balances. Where your mate next door, who's suddenly an expert on vaccines on Facebook, doesn't. So yeah, I think it's different. But journalism is still, yeah, it's still exciting. I mean, I don't know what else I would do. I you've worked overseas, right? I worked for overseas publications. Yeah. yeah.
1: So just the difference between. The overseas publications in South Africa is like, I've got this idea and I might be completely wrong. Like, I always think I can work for any overseas company because journalism in South Africa is like, it's caca. It really is tough. The, the type of stories we cover, the amount of stories we cover, the harshness of our news. What did you find?
2: It depends on who you work for. Like, if you work for, and I've done a, f- a few freelance um, articles for the, the Daily Mail in London, which is a tabloid. Yes. And yet the pressure there, we have no idea what the pressure there is of deadlines, the competition, the knives in the back, yes. but also the kind of sleazy way they approach news. And one of the things that doesn't seem to worry them is facts, if, you know, if it gets in the way of a story. So I was asked some years ago to do a story on a retired quantity surveyor who'd retired to Heinzburg, but he'd inherited the title of the Duke of Athol in the UK. It's an honorary title, and it's quite a complex way of, of looking at it. So he didn't get any money or lands, but he got the right to be the commander-in-chief of the Athol Highlanders. And, of course, the British tabloids were chasing this guy all over the place. None of them could get him. And the Daily Mail um, at that stage, um, the guy in Cape Town was a guy called Peter Young Husband. And Peter got hold of me and said, can you find this guy? So I took Kubas Bordenstein, the photographer, and I drove up to Johannesburg, And we walked in there, and he said, look, we're not going to talk. I'm just, leave me alone. I just want my peace. Now, Corbis is about six foot four. He looks like a St. Bernard with that sad St. Bernard face. And he put, put down his camera bag. And the guy's wife said, are you boys tired? And uh, would you like some tea? And Corbis said, please, ma'am, I'd love some tea. And she made us tea. And then she said, to, to, come on, Rob, you've got to talk to these guys. So eventually, he, he we got an exclusive. But it was a straight up and down story. We spoke to him. I thought I did was quite a nice intro. When it appeared in the Daily Mail, the intro was, so when Rob walks into the critchley hackle, it's drinks are on the duke. I mean, the guy doesn't drink, but that's how, that's how it was rewritten. And that's the kind of thing they do all the time. So it's very kind of, well, we don't care. I mean, but yeah, I think it's, it's all about change and how we cope with it. And I think that is, to me, the big the big thing it's being able to change it journalism is still
0: hell of exciting I think wouldn't do anything else
3: that's why I miss it (laughs) that's why I'm still
0: doing it yeah exactly you've been listening to To Catch a Serial Killer the official companion podcast series to Janine Lazarus true crime memoir Bait To Catch a Killer for easy access to future episodes subscribe via your favourite podcast app or via jackpod.co.za